That was a there was a, a couple of cases where he snatched a gun, and uh, one um, that I knew about. I'm sure there were others that I, did, I didn't know about, but uh, one uh, one of his policemen called and said, "You, we got a guy out here, and he won't he don't want to get in the car." And and so Dad drove out there and said, "Look," and uh, and the guy pulled out a, a pistol in this particular case. And Dad, um, and he got to t- uh, tussling a little bit, but not bad, not as bad as other cases he had. And the gun went off, but anyway, he got him in the car, and, you know, he did. I mean, it was, it was times like that that was that would be going on, you know, all the time. They trained me to fight. Before you leave, everybody's mad at you. Your dad just beat the shit out of me. Separate water fountains, separate swimming pools, separate ball fields. I reach in there and call him by the house the head and pull him out. My friends used to come by the house and say, Tom, you need to get one of those gallons of moonshine. Well, I knew if I did that, he'd lock me up. Why, stand right behind me, doesn't shot him. This is Policing Green, a policeman at the sunset of the Jim Crow South. In this episode, Chief Carlton Lewis befriends the gambler, Kenny Rogers, Tom gets busted for speeding in Union Point, and Johnny Grimes joins Deputy Lewis on a moonshine stakeout. Now a story of sibling rivalry, John and his brother Ronan. Tell me about John. John, you know, he was all, he was men all. And when he get to drinking, he just, uh, uh, he's crazy. He's uh, a bad man. In fact, he's in the institution now. Yeah, he's been in it. Well, is this time. referring to a time you had to go and he was threatening the family with a gun? That's right. Well, I had to go tell, in that cell. I, I had to go in that several times. I had to go in there one time and get his brother. He was drunk and, and I had to jump on John. I mean. Well, tell him about it. I think you you referring about the time he had the gun and he tried to shoot. He was going to shoot you. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, his, he was after his brother then with a the gun. And they called me to go down there and, and look after that. I went down there and. And see, he lived beside his brother. And uh, I went up to his brother's house and he told me what he did. He got a gun and been shooting up there at his house. And, and he had a gun up at his house. I said, well, I'd go down there and, and talk to him. He said, well, I'd go with you. I said, well, if I, you, I wouldn't go. He said, yeah, I'd go. I said, come on. I walked up there at his house. And he was on the porch with a shotgun. And uh, when he did, uh, uh, he told Ronnie, he said, if you come in, I'm going to shoot you. He said, I'm going to shoot your ass off. <laughs> I'm going to do your ass you. And with that, Ronan calls it a night. And Ronan took off, went home. And <laughs> he left, huh? And I was trying to, he was standing on the porch drunk. And uh, I said, yeah, he had a gun. I said, uh, John, uh, uh, let me talk to you. I'm going to talk to you, Carl. I'm going to shoot you. Won't you come up here? And I get talking and I take a few steps and he raised the gun on me again. And, and when he raised the gun, I, I stop. And I get talking to him and I, I gain some more. You know, I walk a few more steps and he raised the gun on me again. I think he raised the gun four times. Finally, I got close enough to, to him and I reached and got that damn gun and snatched it out of his hand and throw his butt in the car and get him back and locked him up. And when John got out of jail? Because he, you know, he had it in for me then. He went completely wild and then had a shotgun down there and he was running down through the woods. I go call my Lord, boom! <laughs> and all down through and Jack called me and said, don't you daddy come down here. <laughs> and then John went back to jail. So we, uh, uh, we finally got him in and 
Of course, he's been in and out of the state hospital ever since. He's in there now. And I said, Dad, were you, were you afraid? Don't that make you afraid? And he says, you're always afraid. If anybody tells you they're not afraid, they're lying. You are afraid, but you never want them to know you're afraid. Most of the time, a cop's going to ask for backup. A lot of times, this never occurred to Dad. I mean, he just did it. The most dangerous situation is when you get a domestic dispute. It's a subject Johnny Grimes knows all too well. You don't know what's going on in their heads. Yeah, you don't know what just happened before he got to that point. Yeah, he yeah. may have just been served divorce papers. Uh-huh. He may yeah. have anything could have gone on in his life, especially in family family disputes. You know, you go in and, I mean, they want it settled, but they don't want anybody arrested. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Before you leave, everybody's mad at you. And you go in there. You've been called by the wife to go in there and arrest this guy because he's beat her. And you start arresting him, and next thing you know, she's beating on you. And uh, domestic disputes uh, uh, are very tough in society, and they're very tough on policemen because they're unpredictable. When we walked in at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, they knew somebody's going to get arrested because somebody's going to say something, you know. And Deputy Lewis was rather aggressive, you know, if you said something. (laughs) He's going to get hooked up. (laughs) What does rather aggressive mean? Well, there's an exchange, which lasts about five seconds. And then you get locked up, you know. You got to understand, this was back in the early 70s. You were out there. On your own, you know, you're enforcing laws, and you go in, and uh, somebody's going to say something like, why are you here? And Chief Lewis is going to say, because I'm the law, and here we go. You know, back and forth until it gets heated, and then somebody gets arrested. He used that phrase, because I'm the law? Yeah. I'm sure he did. Yeah. He lived the law. That was his guiding force, was the law. He was uh, driven by the law, you know, that's, he lived and breathed it. No ifs, ands, or buts, no lefts, no right. The law's the law, and that's how we move. He had one where he got a call. The dispatcher told me to go by the house and they had trouble that night. And I went by there, and, and, uh, and uh, they was fighting him and his wife, fighting him all in he was sitting there on the sofa there. And I would touch him and told the man, get up, I'm going to take him in. Or he, or he wouldn't go nowhere. I, mean, I didn't have no business coming into his house. And I caught him by the arm, see. And I would touch him. And I had him around the waist and on and taking him out of the car. By the time I heard him going, pow! I looked around that damn boy. Why? Standing right behind me. Done shot him. Why you holding him? Yeah, he just missed me that far, man. Shot him in the damn back, and he fell. And Dad tells one of the policemen, I said, grab that damn gun out of that woman's hand over there. So I take that damn man out and put him in the car and carry him up back to the hospital. <laughs> hospital. This God's country we're talking about, son. I'm talking about this. him up back to the hospital, and the man liked to die. Boy, he shot him right in the kidney. They took his kidney out. Didn't yeah. take his kidney out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and I, and you funny part of that. And when he got well to prosecute, and I tell you now to warn him, he got up and and hardly didn't want to prosecute. 
buy a copy of the book on Amazon, Policing Green, with an extra E on the end. When Dad was in the service um, in the Navy, he, he joined the Navy because uh, he was doing World War II. You know, I joined the service back in 41, I mean, in the Second World War. So when I went in service, uh, we had lost our whole complete fleet. He said that that was where he, he really realized that he didn't mind being in a struggle. He didn't mind fighting. He actually kind of enjoyed it. I went in, and, uh, and they trained me to fight. They trained me how you should fight, how you control yourself, how you should have a temper, but it's no good unless you control it. Regardless how scared you get, you're supposed to have enough guts and ambition and want to do to see that fight. And I think that gave to him the fearlessness that he had as a police officer because he many times said he gravitated toward policing because of the service. The incident about getting in the boxing ring with the guy that um, was a, a prof- almost a professional boxer and he, he losing to him because he did it because he thought the guy was bullying people and being too arrogant, and he shouldn't be talking that way to people. And, and, and in the service, you, you, I think they trained him to fight, and they trained him. In that training, he saw that he would never shy away from a good fight because he was not a, gig, a huge man in statue. I really wear my, like I said, wear my life ready to be gone there. Team Blue Line is a nationwide nonprofit that helps the families of law enforcement officers who have selflessly given their lives and officers who have been injured mentally or physically in the line of duty. Strangely enough, there were moonshine still, still going on in Georgia. This is the 60s. I mean, this is not the 30s. This is the 60s. Well, we used to raise lots of moonshine still. That was another habit I would enjoy, too. <laughs> well, a lot of it ran through Greene County. Uh, a lot of it stopped there, a lot of it was made there. We used to get uh, the liquor runners and cars and all, I used to love that too. <laughs> yeah, you chase them down and, you know, lock them up. <laughs> when I was growing up, it was not uncommon for Dad to be gone from the house for three to four days and nights. And the only, only thing I remember, I'd ask Mom, where's Dad? And she said he's laying in a field in the woods watching us. Still. Well, you'd get a tip from somebody, or, you know, there'd be a known move of, of uh, illegal alcohol, and you'd just sit out and wait for them to come. So one day I asked him, I said, Dad, what do you do? He said, well, you got to understand, if we locate the steel and nobody's there, it doesn't do us any good. We, we don't want to blow up the steel at that point. So we wait until the delivery people come in and the owner and they load up the cars. Then we got the evidence. And so he would lay with a revenue agent. They would be hidden in the woods sometimes for 48 hours overnight waiting for somebody to come in with their cars and fill up the jugs of of moonshine in the back. It was not uncommon occasionally for me to come home and in our carport would be 10, 12, 15 gallons of moonshine and then he would take them, classify them as evidence and then pour them out. My friends used to come by the house and say, Tom, you need to get one of those gallons of moonshine. Well, I knew if I did that, he'd lock me up. I think the biggest deal we had, caught right out of Greenboro, Dad, we've been watching it for about a week or 10 days. 
and they had sugar in that thing piled high this city and they had a baller that as big as old sawmill baller that you ever seen. And whoever owned that thing is not the smartest criminal. The man run electricity from this house up back to the steel. Then he run a water line from the steel to a brightstone to pump water back there. And while I was sitting there on the hood of that car, that man, I don't know why any water, he, he, when he got to that place, he shot up in there. And when he did, I jumped off that car, running in, grabbed him in the car, and the revenue agent grabbed the other fellow. And he had something got on in the car. This guy is dedicated to his craft. So we carried him up and locked him up. Then we taken his car, and we loaded up in his car. We drove his car back by his house, through his yard, on up in the driveway, on up at the liquor store. And they had a, <laughs> had a tent up there where they was living in. <laughs> one of the funny things was, I never will forget, was uh, Dad calls me one day. And he says, hey, you want to meet Kenny Rogers? And I said, well, yeah, Dad, I, that'd be nice. He said, well, you know he's filming a movie down here. And Kenny was in Union Point filming Coward of the County. Everyone considered him a coward of the county. And he was married to Mary Ann, I believe, from Athens at the time. They had a place. They lived right outside of Athens. He was filming this movie there, and, of course, all the production, all the Hollywood stuff was there and everything. He said, come down here Saturday. I'll introduce you to him. Well, uh, what happened was, before they were setting up the movie, this big guy walks into Dad's office one day, and he says, I work for Kenny Rogers, and I need you to assign one of your policemen as security with me for when Kenny's around, because people always want autographs and always doing that. Well, Dad said, okay, uh, I'll do that. Well, the more he got to thinking about it, he said, well, I'll just do it. You know, this might be fun. I'll do it. So he told the guy, he said, well, I'm going to do it. I'm the chief. I'll do it. So he said, okay. It was about three or four days into the filming that he said, son, this is the worst thing in the world. He said, they go over these plays and these words. They'll say the same phrase for two hours, and that lighting ain't right, and you're just sitting there watching them over and over and over. But he got to know Kenny real well, and they talked a little bit for several years after that. Not much, but uh, and even one day, Kenny wanted to go fishing. So he set it up where Kenny and Mary Ann could go fishing to a little pond there in Greene County. And, and I went down there. Uh, he said, uh, come down on Saturday. I went down, and Kenny was in one of the trailers that they stay in until it's time for them to do their scene. And he was sitting in there, and Dad, uh, he came out and started talking to Dad, introduced me to Kenny, and we talked. And he got to know Kenny pretty well, and they were using Union Point for the, for the movie. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the 1950s and 60s when the results of Jim Crow were taught to us as just the natural course of nature. There were no blacks living anywhere near us. They, of course, went to their own separate schools in public places. They had separate uh, water fountains, separate swimming pools, separate ball fields, and so forth. But I can tell you the thing that affected me more than anything else would be riding a bus, coming to a stop. A group of people would be waiting to get on. The whites would get on first. Dutifully standing back would be an elderly black woman who had probably worked her day as a maid in the white suburbs for a wealthy white family, going home back to her side of town. She'd get home, pay her money, walk by empty seats where she could have sat, but she, of course, had to go to the back of the bus. And as I watched her trudge back there, I felt that this was just not right. Road Sports Corner and General Store on Sibley Avenue lives up to its name in offering countless items for almost any purpose. 
If you can't find what you're looking for there, it isn't in Greene County. It is also one of the popular gathering places for the men in the community, a status that was held many years ago by the Sinclair Filling Station on the corner where Athens Highway crosses Lamb Avenue. That station was once owned by Carlton Lewis in the 1950s, years before he found his calling in police work. Lanier Rhodes, Union Point's current mayor and owner of the sports corner along with his wife Jill, remembers being allowed to sit with the men at Carlton's filling station on evenings after dinner when they would wander down there to smoke, shoot the breeze, and enjoy an hour or so of male sociability before calling it a night. Lanier well remembers those evenings, frequently accompanied by laughter when Mr. Carlton's disciples convened at the Sinclair station. The guys would drag their chairs outside and line them up in a semicircle along the station's front wall facing the gas pumps with the chairbacks forward. They'd all sit like that with arms draped over the chairbacks and Carlton holding court, the smoke from their cigarettes filling the air. They would talk about things that had happened that day and whatever topic was offered up for discussion. Politics, sports, community news, and gossip. Whatever popped into somebody's head would be brought to the attention of all. The station was situated along the main drag into downtown Union Point, a good location for a filling station. The railroad ran just behind it, and the boys would sometimes have to delay their talk a bit as a train clattered by, blowing its whistle on an approach into town. As twilight deepened into darkness... Men would one by one announce they'd better head on back home to a wife tolerant of this odd male herd behavior. Now the chief talks about the guys sentenced to hard labor going on strike. In every county they used to have work camps. And there were people that were serving time. Public work camp, that's what they call it. That's where they kept the prison. They worked on the road and kept, you know, the road clean. And they were serving time for alcohol. Uh, it might be robbery, you know. But they would take them to a place to pick up trash on the side of the road and do things like that, to do work detail out in the county. And in the particular cell was about seven or eight individuals. And I remember one time there, it was uh, uh, about 16 or 17, they pulled a strike out of that combat camp. Well, that morning, the warden of that little work camp in Green County called Dad, and Dad was sheriff deputy at the time. I walked out there, he said, Cornish, about 16 men back there in that corner when come out, we're going to get them. Dad said, well, what's the problem? He says they don't they don't feel like they're getting fed right. I said, well, you want to go back in and get them men? He said, yeah. <laughs> so, so it was some guards standing around there. I don't know why he didn't ask them. He walks in, and they're in a cell. And there's about seven or eight of them in a cell. And he says, what's the problem, guys? And I said, we're not working. We're not going. He said, they feed us bad food. They, the conditions are not good. And yeah, 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 yeah. And so Dad said, this is not Holiday Inn. Y'all all, each one of you, committed some reason that you're here. So you've got to go to work, and you've got to do your d- detail, the picking up the trash and doing the stuff that, that they had planned for you to do today. And they said, we're not going, and you're not going to make us. Well, at that comment, Dad reached, took his pistol out of his holster, and gave it to the warden. And the warden said, he said, look, he said, Sheriff, I'll, I'm calling back up. He said, go ahead and call him if you want to, but we're not putting up with this. So he gave him his pistol, and he said, unlock the door. And he told me, he said, but boys, this is what we're going to do. This is the way we're going to do this. I'm going to come in there, and one by one, 
I'm going to bring you out. And either you're going to go on the work detail or you're going to the hole. And they said, you're not coming in here and we're not going to do it and you ain't putting it. Well, they opened the door and he went in. I started on that and I got to the first one before I got to the, uh, the others being back in the corner. So I started back in and one man standing out, you know, in front of the rest of them. I grabbed him. I said, let's go, buddy. He said, he wasn't going no damn way. And I, I got to touch him in my hitting. And uh, he grabbed me, I grabbed him around the neck, and when he did, he, boy, he caught on my arm and I'd chewed it off. Bit of plug down me. When he did, there was others that started after me. And one of the guards there stole a gun on their feet. And if they didn't stop, they were going to shoot him down. So I got them guards out, brought him out, taken them over there, and they put them in a confined place, in all 17. When it was all said and done, about two or three of them went to the hospital. Dad went to the hospital. By the time the patrol and some of the others got there, they they got the others and, and they went. It showed that when it got to that kind of situation, it was no reason not to follow through. He was going to do it, and if it meant taking it on, he took it on. You know, my mother and I used to question whether or not that was the thing to do. Why didn't you wait on the other police officers and y'all could sing you know a bunch of you just go in and do it he didn't do that he said no they didn't want to go and i told him that's we're going to go and that's what i was going to do constantly walked into situations like that we don't see what goes on in the everyday life of a, of a police officer the chief has one more story the time he calls the dogs to sniff out some runaway convicts three prisoners keep i think each one of them about four years and uh We've been running down with a dog around midnight, and all the rest of them then quit and then give up. Couldn't find them. And uh, I was driving down the old road, and I heard this dog barking in this yard. There. I drove up in the yard. I got out of the car and I walked around the house. The old dog just barking out there. I knew he'd saw something. He was barking like that. I got down on the knees and looked under the house. <laughs> His eyes <was> that big, <laughs> and uh, and the uh, hides were pretty close to the ground. And I told him, "Go He said, "Don't shoot, don't shoot." And I reached in there and caught him by the hair of the head and pulled him out. Now Tom tells us about a couple of ride-alongs. We'll get to his own story in a minute, but first, Chief Lewis takes his grandson to work. When we had our firstborn, Wes, he was very small, and he would like to go down to see his grandparents. Well, one of his favorite things to do was to ride in the police car with his grandpa. And he would stand up, wrong thing to do, right by his grandpa, holding on to his shoulder, and he was about three years old, between two and three. And he would stand by his grandpa holding on to his shoulder and, and dad would let him ride and he'd let him flip the lights on, you know, and do stuff. And they'd ride around. Well, one day they were just riding around for a little while and a guy ran a stop sign and bumped dad's police car, the chief's car. You can imagine, yeah, DUI hits his police car. So dad gets out and because Wes's eyes are big and he didn't want to leave my son, my little two, three-year-old son in the car. So he picks him up and holds him with one arm 
He gets out, goes to the car that uh, the DUI driver was in, gets him out of the car, arrest him with my son under his arm, puts him in the cage of the chief's car, and gets ready to take him to jail. When he gets to thinking, well, I can't go down to the jail with him, my grandson, in the car. You know, I, I, I need to take him back home. So he comes back to the house where, where they are, and my wife and my mother are standing there, and Dad pulls up with this drunk in the cage of the police car, and Wes sitting up front. And by this time, Wes and this guy starts talking. You know, how you doing? Hey, hey, hey. So when Wes gets out of the car, he says, bye-bye. And the little guy says, bye-bye, back to him. And then Dad drives him off to the jail, thankfully, for my wife's sake and my mother's sake, he brought him home before he actually took him to the jail and arrested him. I remember you talking about riding with him. I, w- I was in the car with him one day. I was I was home. I was home from college, and he got a call. He was in there at the supper table there, and they called me and told me to go out there in the country. And lady called and said her husband was drunk. Oh, probably he did. He worked for the county too. He weighed two hundred forty-seven pounds. He was a heavy equipment. Operator. And he was yelling and tearing things up at the house. Could he come out there? And so Dad said, uh, I'm not going to send one. Let's, let's go out there. Come on, go with me. So we go out there, and I'm riding in the police car. And, and it was one of the few times that I actually rode with him and saw him in action. And he got out of the car, and he walked over to the guy. And the guy was sitting on the step next to his back door. And he was sitting on the doorstep. Mm-hmm. Sitting out there on the back doorstep. And the guy, he said, get up. Called him by his name. He said, get up. Get up. Let's go. You've been disorderly, and your wife has filed a complaint. We, I'm going to have to lock you up. And that guy stood up, and he, the guy was a caterpillar operator. He was a big dude. The guy stood up, and he looked enormous to me when he stood up. And he grabbed my dad by both his shoulders. Caught me on his shoulder. I'm going to make a man out of you. And he says, you're not taking me no damn place. And I'll make a man out of you. I said, take your hands off of me. I'm going to put your tongue when you said that. And before he finished saying that, my dad whirled around and hit him just with his cold fist in the stomach, in the chest, and in the jaw. And that guy was down. I stepped back and I let him have that side jaw. <laughs> his feet flew up and he hit the ground. He hit the ground. <laughs> He shook his head. You hit me. I said, I'm going to whoop your butt if you don't get up, man. Come on. <laughs> and then he said, give me your hands. And he locked him up, put him in the back of the car. I got him up, put him in the car. Literally. Yeah. Busted lip. And, uh, and, and, I, and I'm sitting there. You know, I'd never seen, and I'd always heard these stories, but I'd never seen anything like that. And so he, he, uh, he was in the cage in the back. He kind of raised up and looked at me in the cage, and he said, your dad just beat the out of me. Go ahead and say it. Yeah, your dad, he said, he looked at me and said, your dad just beat the shit out of me. He told Tommy, your daddy hit me. <laughs> he said, slap the shit out of me. What are you <laughs> You know, and kind of laughed. And I laughed, and I thought, well, this is, this is interesting, you know. And then we, got, we went down to the jail, and Dad said, okay, get out of the car. He got out of the car like a little puppy, still had him handcuffed, walked down to the cell. Yeah, him up there, and, uh, <laughs> and the commissioner went by to see him next morning. See, he, was, he was a bulldog driver. And he told him, he said, you know, he said, I fell off the bunk last night. And I said, my jaw was hurt. 
He said, you didn't fall off the boat. The old caller knocked the devil out of you. <laughs> that kind of stuff, they said, would go on all the time. We've got another story of Tom riding in the police car, but this is one you won't find in the book, because this time he's in the back seat. There are a lot of stories about Dad and how he handles situations that we've heard from other people that work with him. One that is not known by hardly anybody is, except me was uh, when I turned 16, I began to drive pretty fast, and I kind of thought I was something. In fact, I, I, I was probably over 16. But anyway, I, I'd, I'd gotten me a car, and I was driving and pushing the envelope a little bit, driving a little fast. And, and so Dad told, he had told some of the policemen in Union Point, because uh, I think some of them had said, uh, Chief, you know, Tommy's coming through town. He's really going a little fast. So he told them, and this goes back to, it was the law according to Carlton. He said, uh, if he comes in here, I don't care if he's not speeding. I want one of y'all to lock him up. And they said, what? They said, I want you to stop him for speeding, and I want you to take him in and take him to jail and put him in a cell. Well, it was, they thought they had died and gone to heaven, I think. So sure enough, I'm coming into town one day, and I get pulled over. And uh, I said, well, what's going on? How's it going? He said, uh, you need to get out of the car. Let me see your license. And I said, well, you know, give me a break. And he said, oh, you, let's talk about this. said, you were speeding. I didn't have enough sense. No, they didn't have a radar on me or nothing. But they said, you were speeding. And uh, he said, we're going to have to take you in. And I said, take me in? What do you mean, take me in? He said, no, you're speeding. we got to take you in. Well, I... I knew enough to know you didn't argue with a law enforcement officer because I lived with one, and so I said, well, okay. So they actually put me in the car and carried me down to the cell, walked me in and stuck me in a cell, and I'm sure they were loving it. And the instruction was, when you do that, then you call me. That's what Dad had told them to do. So I'm sitting there in the cell, and uh, about that time, I hear, well, where is he? knew then so he comes down opens the door door wasn't even locked i thought you know find out later they didn't even lock the door they just stuck me in there but you know i was young and green and had no clue what was going on all i knew was i done got myself in a big pile of mess and so i i, I stood up as dad walked into the cell and i said dad i can explain this and he just pushed me back and i sat down on the bunk and he sat down and he gave me about a 10 minute for the son speech about driving too fast, about being reckless, about being young and not thinking anything can happen to you, and I could end up having a wreck and hurting myself, or worse, hurting somebody else. Almost knew it by word, verbatim, still do, but it was his way of telling me that you got to be careful, because he ended all of it by saying, son, I just wanted you to see what the other side of the sale's like. Because if you're not careful, we'll have you there. And so it sent a message. And that's, that's, uh, that was one of his um, big advice times for me, for the son, that I, that I heard. And, and he did. And, of course, it, it became a joke among those that knew it, you know. 
I tried to keep it quiet. I didn't want nobody to, to know that it happened. <laughs> On the next Policing Green. Told me the house and told me to get out and all quick as you can when my men been shot. Now, I've never arrested a peacock and don't want to have to arrest one. Chief Lewis is going to say, because I'm the law. Jose Williams was in Sandersville, and he was drunk. He does nothing but walk out on the dance floor and does the jitterbug. So there was illegal alcohol? Yes. Lots of it. <laughs> We're talking Greene County, Georgia. Team Blue Line is a national nonprofit organization that exists to help the families of fallen law enforcement officers and officers who have been injured, both physically and mentally, in the line of duty. Like Tom says, we never will forget. Visit TeamBlueLine.org. Hello, I'm David Rogers uh, with the Atlanta Police Department. Back in February, I was injured in the line of duty. Um, still kind of in recovery, but this here is to thank Team Blue Line for the assistance they provided me during my recovery and all of the support they've given me uh, throughout. So I'd like to thank Chad and Team Blue Line for everything they've done and uh, look forward to continue working with them in the future.